Welcome to the first episode of Apartment Cast, the official podcast of the National Apartment Association, the voice of the rental housing industry. I'm your host, Frank Mock, and I'm excited to be broadcasting from NAA's headquarters just outside our nation's capital, where we're going to be providing you with ongoing insight from rental housing industry leaders on all things apartments, from leadership to operational strategy to federal advocacy and more. So let's just jump right in. I'm pleased to be joined today by Greg Brown, our SVP of Government Affairs here at NAA. So the first thing I want to do is just ask you to introduce yourself. Tell us a bit about yourself, about uh, your career in lobbying. Sure, Frank. Um, so I'm the Senior Vice President for Government Affairs at NAA, which means that I'm, I lead the team, uh, the advocacy team here at the association. Uh, people who do what I do come at it from a lot of different places. I think I can honestly say, um, in full truth, that I always wanted to be involved in politics in some way. I can't say that I wanted to be a lobbyist because I'm not sure when I was in high school or getting into college I actually knew what that meant, but I knew that I wanted to be in politics or government in some way. Um, that led me to graduate school for public administration, which is more, as it sounds, kind of more on the management side of politics, not what I do now. But uh, I joined a, um, after doing some fundraising, some political fundraising, I joined a trade association, a very small trade association that worked on affordable housing issues. And that really got me the bug to get into the housing space. And the more I did that, um, I really liked advocacy. And at that point, I was working mostly on policy. So I was the person standing behind the lobbyists saying, this is what we believe and this is why this is a problem and sort of giving them guidance on what we wanted as an association, what the members needed. Then I went to the National Association of Home Builders um, as my second uh, stint in this business. And after doing policy again for a few years, I got the opportunity to actually get into the lobbying side of things where I really uh, just had a great time, a lot of fun, really enjoyed it. I got to work on a lot of different issues, um, representing single-family home builders, multifamily developers, property managers, uh, um, remodelers, all sorts of different parts of the housing space. I did that for almost uh, 10 years until I came to NAA in 2010 and have been here ever since. And so um, back to my point earlier about people come at this from different directions. I came at it from the policy side. I just converted from a policy person to a lobbyist. Other people come from Capitol Hill. They come from campaigns. Uh, just sort of they emerge because of a passion for a certain issue. It all happens in different directions. Mine happened to be from the policy side, and it's been, uh, it's been quite a ride, and I've enjoyed it a lot. Lots of different ways to... Uh come into the space, but uh, we're definitely glad to have you at NAA. Uh, the uh, next question I have is, uh, you know, many of the listeners are probably aware of uh, advocacy of lobbying, but uh, I think it's safe to assume that most people don't have a good understanding of a lobbyist day-to-day -day activities. Can you enlighten us a bit? Uh, what does your average day look like if you ha actually have an average day? Yeah, I mean, we all have average days. I think one of the best parts about this job is that there's a lot of variety. And that variety comes from the fact that Congress is a bit frenetic, as we all know, and you can be jumping from one thing to another thing. So, for example, you may be working proactively to advance a piece of legislation, and so your day looks like, okay, who amongst the members of Congress I'm trying to reach have I not spoken with yet? Do I need to talk to that staff? get an appointment to talk to them about the bill we want them to sponsor or the issue we want them to become interested in and start making the case on those issues. So I've got calls that i got to make and people i got to talk to. Do I have uh, coalition members that I need to get with and say, okay, here's where we stand on this particular bill, here's what we need to do, so more like strategizing. 
then every lobbyist almost every day has at least one fundraiser they have to go to where we have to use our very generous PAC resources to help get in front of members of Congress and support our friends, et cetera. Those are all things you're doing on the proactive side. But then there's always something pops up. Someone decides they're going to have a hearing on this issue or someone introduces a piece of legislation on that issue, and then you're shifting to defense. Then you could be working with our with you and our comms team on answering media questions about a particular issue or, or um, statement that's made by a member of Congress. Or we could be running interference with another office that says, hey, we might support this bill that might be bad for you all. What do you think about that? So there's a lot of variety there. But I think generally what you're always doing, what you always should be doing, is talking to a policymaker and trying to make the case about a particular issue or a particular piece of legislation. Everything else is just sort of moving parts that go along with that. Uh, many of us, um, myself included, uh, experience the world, uh, the lobbying world in Washington through these entertainment pop culture references. Uh, in your estimation, what's one trope that movies and TV get right about your profession? And then what's one thing that's just wildly off base? So some of my, my most enjoyable or most enjoyed, I guess, pop culture um, outlets about politics, shows about politics, are definitely Veep and the West Wing. And that's because they show you, especially in the case of Veep, that politics is completely messy and and uh, as much as it tries to be planned and perfect, there's a, usually a complete <laughs> disaster going on behind the scenes that you don't ever see. And that there's a lot of, let's call them very interesting personalities. It's not this hyper-polished, perfect, down to the last second sort of a thing that I think a lot of Americans tend to tend to view it really is more like that more like Veep and, and similar shows than it is like anything else the the, the trope that's off base uh, I think there's two of them I think that are pretty important one is this idea of the gunslinger I call it, gunslinger lobbyist somebody who just picks up the phone and changes national policy like that makes one phone call or goes into someone's office makes an impassioned speech or even worse gives them a bunch of money and then national policy changes that it almost never happens. There are people that can get a meeting. They can get a member of Congress on the phone. They can talk to a secretary of a department. They can even see the president. But that's about as far in, in most cases as those types of, of, of actors can really get. And they're also very transitory. So when a, the, a new president comes into office, there might be people that have a relationship with that president or that secretary, whatever it might be. And they have a lot of access, so they, they, all of a sudden they're the game in town. They're the ones that can get you that meeting, et cetera, et cetera. As soon as that person, that president, that secretary leaves, that person's value goes immediately down because that's the, that's the relationship they have. So I think that the idea that there are people that can really change the, change the axis of the earth because of just who they are, is, is, that's, that's not realistic. It's really more about all the things that we do, the grassroots, the, the PAC, the media, all communications, all those things, that's how you change national policy. And the other half of the trope that I think is, is that these things get done overnight, and they don't. Legislation, most legislation, with the exception of emergency legislation like the CARES Act or things like that, most legislation, legislation takes multiple Congresses to pass. When I was at the Home Builders, I started working on a Section 8 reform bill, and it was only passed 10 years later when I was at NAA. And that bill went through 20 different variations before it actually became a final product. So legislation almost always takes a lot of time. It doesn't always take 10 years, but it certainly t you know, can take multiple two, three, four years before it ever sees 
passage if you're lucky and gets to the president desk, president's desk. So I think those are some of the tropes where I think people, you know, Hollywood likes to boil things down, simplify it, and it just doesn't work that way. That's a great answer. Um, and in reference to uh, multiple Congress, uh, uh, multiple Congresses, uh, we're just coming off a midterm election, new Congress uh, in 2023. Uh, can you talk about some of your initial priorities for just introducing new members to the rental housing industry? Yeah, I think, um, again, if we're talking about tropes or misunderstandings, multifamily suffers from a lot of them because we are a very much more complicated business than I think most members of Congress understand. Um, and, you know, I think for many members of Congress, housing, their immediate concept of housing is single family, is build a house, sell a house, build a house, sell a house. That's it. The idea of property management and relationships between residents and housing providers, that is just, that's way beyond their sort of day-to-day -day exposure. And so what we have to do is we have to make them understand first what the industry looks like. They also, many of them, have this idea that all rental housing is owned, operated by giant corporations and that, you know, half the nation is housed by one company or all these sorts of things. And, and pop culture feeds into this and the public narrative feeds into this. So first of all, we have to educate them that half of, of rental housing is by very small mom and pops. Right. And the percentage of the overall amount of whatever 40 million units of rental housing that are out there, the percentage that's owned by large institutions is tiny compared to the percentage that's owned by small mom and pops again, but even moderately sized firms. So that's one piece. The second is the reality of the cost versus the profit. And I think our the, the graphic that we use that was developed here in-house about where a dollar of rent goes is especially important because, again, many members think that housing providers are taking home two-thirds of the rent that's paid to them, and that's uh, we all know that's not the case. It's 10 cents on average is what a, an owner is actually taking home. The rest is going to pay somebody else, and so I think that's another reality they have to uh, we have to educate them on. And then finally, back to where I started, it's the complicated nature of the business that from the minute you're trying to build a, a rental housing community or, or purchase one and uh, you know just get the get the product out there, get it on the market through the entire relationship with residents and all those moving parts, it's incredibly complicated and we try to educate them on that, dispel some of those mis misunderstandings they might have and just make them understand a little bit better uh, how things operate in this business. And it's an interesting point, a great point too, about the the dollar of rent hit. and even the the idea of the the revenue piece, uh, the ten cents on every dollar. Some years it's nine cents, mm -hmm. um, so even a, a fraction of that or a portion of that, depending on the owner. Uh, sometimes that's a right. um, you know a pension fund, um, uh, somebody's four hundred one k in 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 the case of um, investment trusts. So um, even thinking about an owner as an individual or a singular corporation isn't entirely accurate. Um, we had um, talked previously about uh, the affiliate network, NAA's affiliates, yeah. and um, the opportunity for Congress members to reach out um, to any of our affiliates, the listing, of course, on our website, um, that, that those are resources available to them as well. Yeah, I think that's a, when we are meeting a new office or even many existing offices that maybe we don't have as strong of a relationship with, we always try to make sure they know there's someone in almost every district around the country, there's, there's an apartment association there that can help you. And uh, it's an incredibly important resource. We hope to tell you some of them use them, and that's why we have such great relationships because of our affiliate network. Others, uh, you have to make some introductions and, and, and get the two parties together, but it can be a great resource for them when we try to emphasize that. 
Let's um let's talk real big picture. What are the industry's sort of overarching federal legislative and regulatory priorities for 2023? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly housing affordability uh, as an umbrella category uh, continues to be our number one priority. And then the, there are a whole series of issues that filter uh, down from there. Um, you know, in this this current Congress, that we still have a few weeks left in this current Congress, we've been trying to work on both sides of the equation, the supply side and the demand side. On the supply side, trying to use or, or create opportunities for the federal government to use its levers to lower barriers to development at the local level. On the demand side, try to improve and broaden the use of Section 8 as the single most important tool we have to helping people make their rent if they do not have the means to do that on their own. Uh, those will continue to be priorities um, in, in this next Congress. And I think we've got some, you know, some other areas that we're going to have to be paying attention to on the operational side. The reality is for people who are listening who don't know is that Congress tip used to not get into these operational issues around rental housing. You know, when I was at the Home Builders, housing usually boiled down to what was happening at Fannie and Freddie and FHA, what about the National Flood Insurance Program, and how much money are we going to put towards Section 8? Now they're getting into issues of resident screening and eviction and the, how we set, set our rents and the technology we use to do that and many other things. So I think we, have, we, we continue to have some proactive things we're trying to pass to get at that, those housing affordability issues, but we're also going to be playing a bit of defense uh, as some of these other topics come up and, and, and Congress grapples with those. And, and that does bring up the question of threats. Um, yeah. Certainly we saw, even just in the last election, several municipalities and states focused on uh, rent control, as you mentioned, in more of an operational uh, aspect mm -hmm. of housing, um, which is our you know, rent, rent control specifically, and I'm sure our listeners know, um, has absolutely failed to solve for affordability issues and, quite frankly, probably made them a whole lot worse. Um, at the federal level, uh, you had mentioned some. What are, what are these... Um, what are some of the biggest sort of legislative and regula regulatory concerns um, that the industry should consider when advocating this year? Yeah, I mean, I think because we're now entering divided government again, uh, the way this works typically, and I think it, we're already seeing it's going to be this way in 2023 and beyond, is that the legislative side becomes more difficult to pass – sorry, it is more difficult to pass legislation now than it was previously when you have divided – now that you have divided government. That works to our benefit in that it can help us hold back some uh, bad legislation that would hurt the industry. Also makes it more difficult for us to pass other legislation we might want to because, again, there's that divided government, that partisan push-pull that can make it tough. The biggest threat for us is now the regulatory threat. And this administration now is, is, it is clear if they want to Im, uh, enact their agenda, they will have to do so versus regulatory means, using regulatory means and not legislation. And therein lies the difficulty. So when we have federal agencies, whether it's HUD, CFPB, the FTC, the Department of Justice, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which regulates Fannie and Freddie, they all can uh, impose regulatory burdens if as they see fit. Now they have to go through a rulemaking process in some cases, not all, but in some cases. But really that is a more of a timing issue and it's, it can be very difficult to stop those types of regulatory um, proposals. We can try to impact those and that's certainly what we're preparing ourselves to do. So, But I think the volume of what we're going to see out of this administration is what is our biggest threat over the next couple of years. And so we are adjusting our, our strategy, advocacy strategy, accordingly to prepare our, ourselves for that and try to get ahead of it uh, as much as we can. 
this regulatory side of things is is very challenging. If, if those of you that are fami- those are the listeners that are fam- familiar with the disparate impact rule, disparate impact is this concept where you can uh, you can violate fair housing without intending intending to violate fair housing. It, it's not about whether you intended to or not. It's whether the outcome of what you uh, the policy implemented actually had the effect of of impacting a protected class. This went through the Supreme Court. The Obama administration passed a rule on disparate impact, a very difficult one for us. They passed, the, uh, they passed that rule. The Trump administration came into office. They rescinded that rule and issued their own version of that same rule. The Biden administration rescinded that rule when they came into office last year, and now they're about to issue their own version again of that same rule. So this regul- these regulatory things can be very tough, complicated, uh, but I think the, the, the theme, the, the takeaway is we're, it's going to be a consistent challenge for us in the next couple of years. I want to stay on um, legislation and regulation for, for one more question at least, and that is, um, you know, I think one of the biggest sticking points in the aftermath of the CDC's nationwide eviction moratorium boils down to what I essentially I think is a clerical error. Uh, that's the lack of a sunset date for the 30-day notice to vacate. Um, can you talk a little bit more on, on why this inhibits operators from providing safe and affordable housing? Well, I mean, if you're referring to the misconceptions, yeah, it's definitely because people go into these conversations with a preconceived set of ideas about how the business works when they really don't, uh, they don't fully understand that. And I think that um, one, of the, one of the things they don't understand is that there are resident protections already in place in every single state in this country. And in some places, uh, for example, uh, you know, there are some out there, some advocates out there who put a lot of stock in the notice to vacate and say, we have to have the strongest notice to vacate policy we can have or else there are no renter protections. Well, the, the reality is there are states like uh, New Jersey, which has some of the strongest renter protections of any state in the country. Just ask any of our members that operate in New Jersey, and they have no notice period whatsoever. And so I think there's a misconception about the full scale or scope of things that are out there to provide protection, not only to residents, but to the housing provider as well. That's what the lease is for. And so I think that that's you know, putting everything in this one item, which is kind of where we've arrived at with this CARES Act notice to vacate, is a little bit, um, uh, it's, it's, it's challenging for the entire conversation. But I think the, the, the larger question, the larger thing we run into is that this isn't really about whether or not there are enough renter protections. It's what is the floor for renter protections. And what we're seeing is that the administration is trying to establish a floor for renter protections, at least for this one class of property, those that are federally backed. So anybody that has a Fannie Freddie mortgage, FHA, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what they, what they ignore, what the misconception is, that this will not have an impact on the rest of the market. They will just put a protection in place, whatever, pick your pick your protection they want to they want to add just cause eviction legal representation whatever it might be that it'll only be a benefit well ask anybody who's already in the space and already has a series of for example notice periods for conventional for affordable for Fannie Freddie back properties and now you're going to add another one onto that the the challenge of managing properties especially if you have a, a portfolio of more than one property maybe you have one property that's got Fannie Freddie uh, insurance on one side of the street and a conventional on the other. You're trying now. You've got multiple different uh, regimes you have to follow. So I think the misconception is we'll just put this in place and it'll all only be a benefit. When in actuality, it will make operating in the space much more difficult. 
Why is that bad? Well, certainly it could drive people out of the space. Someone could say, I'm not going to participate in this business anymore. I'm going to put my money in another investment right at the time where we need as much investment as we can get into rental housing. But it also uh, increases the cost of compliance for owners. That pulls down the bottom line for some of these communities, which can only harm the residents that live there now. So I think the misconceptions are that it's all about one thing or this thing, and that's the only way we can improve the situation for residents when it's much more complicated than that. And the other misconception is that we can impose these new requirements and there will be no, there'll be no negative impact. This is only good. And that's, that's a really short-sighted view, I think. Yeah, it would seem that the, the road to bad policy is always paved with good intentions, or at least that's what I hope sure. is the case. <laughs> um, and obviously you've listed a, a quite a few misconceptions about the industry that I, I do think lead to um, policy that either on its face is bad or that has severe unintended consequences, something we see with rent control uh, wherever it's ever attempted, really. Um, you know, let's talk about housing affordability. We know this is a centerpiece issue in national politics, has been for years now. Um, there's a body of evidence that squarely points to this being a supply-side problem. What legislative opportunities exist that would attend to the source of this problem, and what policy should the industry be advocating for? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question, is what role can the federal government play when it comes to affordability? We talked about the demand side a little bit already. On the supply side, there, there are certain ways, um, carrots and sticks, let's call them, that the federal government can use to encourage localities to lower their barriers to development. You know, on the on the stick side, and it's a very very soft stick. Let's call it a, a stick wrapped in bubble wrap. There's the the IMBI Act, which only would require localities to uh, report on what they're doing to lower barriers. Doesn't tie up their money that they get through the community development block grant program. Doesn't threaten any other source of funding. It just says if you're getting federal money, we want you to tell us what you're doing to lower barriers. And that we hope just puts agency or puts localities in the position of looking at their policy and maybe during that that process of evaluating and preparing their reporting they will say well maybe we could do something about this issue let's focus on that it's a very very soft stick on the uh, on the carrot side that there, there are grant programs that we are pursuing uh, money that we're trying to get into the the federal budget that would reward people that actually reduce barriers to development so if you eliminate parking requirements where they're not needed ne next to transit-oriented development or, or what have you, you would be rewarded by getting some grant dollars for that. I mean, those are ways that the, government, that the federal government can try to incentivize loca those localities to take the actions that we need uh, to take. Now, I mean, I think that if we're, look if we're working in the state and local arena, well, that's where it gets much more, uh, you know, uh, tougher. But y we really just have to get local, local governments to focus on how their own policies are impairing their ability to meet the needs, the housing needs of their, of their citizens. And that's where we really have to get people focused. And, and we, we do work at the state and local level with our affiliates, and we try to do that kind of thing there as well. Uh, but for the federal side, it's really about carrots and sticks and trying to create those incentives. Frankly, I think the incentives are more important and more, more impactful uh, to try to get people to change their behavior. Today's theme is going to be about um, uh, misconceptions and things that are difficult to understand. Um, when you're meeting with policymakers and their staffs, are there particular issues or, or aspects of property management that just seem to be widely misunderstood or just very challenging for, for folks to understand? 
Yeah, we talked a little bit about it earlier, which is the, the breakdown of profit versus cost. Uh, that, again, that, that dollar of rent, I think that's a big one. Uh, people have no idea where the money goes. Uh, and that's not just our industry, right? That's most industries. People right. don't understand what it costs to produce a widget or make a car or whatever it might be. And so I think that's that's the biggest one we, we constantly have to work on, and I talked about that already. I think on eviction, certainly the popular narrative would have you believe that our members evict at will and at the earliest opportunity and as much as they can, which, you know, of course, is completely uh, ludicrous because eviction is, 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 you know, it's bad for everyone. We all agree. But it's, it's, it's bad for the owner. A lot of uh, folks that are here talking about this really don't recognize the damage it does, the, the financial cost, the damage to the community, the, the difficulty for the owner, all the things that are, you know, that impact an owner just as, you know, are just as important as the impact in the individual or family that is, you know, going to be moved out of their unit. Um, eviction generates no revenue for, uh, for a community. Uh, our members try to avoid eviction as much as they possibly can. It's, it's uh, typically a last resort. And I think the other big thing, separate from the owner experience from a data side of things, there's, a, there's an idea that every filing is an eviction. And that right. is categorically not true, not even close. And so I just this morning heard a report talking about evictions in a community around the country, and they were talking about how filings were way up, and there's all these filings. And they're missing, they don't tell the other half of that, which is that filings are way up, but we don't know how many evictions become of those filings because uh, that data is very difficult to find. But our own investigation here at NAA strongly suggests and supports the idea that the actual number of evictions is substantially lower than the number of filings. So eviction is a big one. And then I think screening is another one. Screening is a very challenging area because for any business, risk management is a key part of how you stay in business. And like any, you know, our members have to, have to go through a process to determine who's going to be living in their units. That's for the safety of the other residents, for the safety of the staff, for the taking care of the property. And that means you have to go through a screening process. And, uh, you know, I think many in Congress uh, and others view screening as some sort of a exercise to keep out as many people as we can keep out, where it's really just a process of understanding who's going to be in your unit and going through what is a standard risk management um, exercise, just like it would be for any other industry. So I think that uh, you know, screening, eviction, and certainly the cost versus, uh, or profit versus cost uh, elements are particularly misunderstood and ones we really have to spend a lot of time on. Amazing, uh, amazing answer. And so much is wrapped up in, and that would take us hours to, to unpack. But, you know, I think we've spent a significant time talking about misconceptions. Let's talk about our, um, you know, potential misconceptions among our listeners. Um, I, I know that quite a few of NAA members have really good relationships with their respective representatives mm -hmm. at the federal level. Um, given your experience, are there any universal characteristics or, or attributes that make for a good advocate? Yeah, uh, none will surprise you, but I, I'm continually surprised by how amazing our advocates are. And I think there's a couple of characteristics. Certainly interest. You know, everybody has day jobs, they have family, they have other, other things that they like to do. The fact that someone would take some of that time and devote it to advocacy is a, you have to want it. You have to, you can't just do it as a, because, you know, you have to do it. You do it because you want to do it. And so interest is the first thing. Passion is another because it requires, it's not just a one and done sort of a situation. You really have to want to do this for the long term and, and invest your time and energy in it. And those, the, that kind of passion is what we see in our advocates. 
commitment again for the not just for the the activity the action I ask you to take today but the commitment to developing relationships to continuing to work on the issues to taking something until you get uh, until you get satisfaction on the issue or you you get the goal you get to the goal you were trying to achieve the best example is people that are getting their member of Congress to co to co-sponsor bills that are important to us you know the best advocates will doggedly pursue their member until they get the answer they want which is yes I will co-sponsor this legislation so I think all of those things you know interest passion commitment those are all uh, you know, those are all common amongst our, our strongest advocates. Uh, and there's a lot of other things that they, they show too, but those are three kind of the, of the biggest, most significant ones. Perfect. Um, if there was one thing our listeners could do today to help advance the industry's federal agenda, what would that one thing be? To talk about the issues. And there's a lot I could unpack from that, but I would just say that talking about the issues with your colleagues, with your elected officials, whether it's a member of Congress or the a city council member or, um, you know, a regulator, anybody, just talking about the issues, getting the, the issues and the, the, the interest, the perspective of our industry out into the ether, that's what changes minds. And it doesn't happen overnight. It takes, it takes time. But just having the conversation and getting the discussion out there uh, that builds up in different places and over time, and, and that's really what can make the difference. There's a lot of other things that go into it, but certainly just that act by itself uh, advances the cause for sure. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you heard it here first. Um, Greg, I, I want to thank you for uh, spending some time with us today. Uh, certainly My we'll pleasure. be bringing you back over and over again as we progress through uh, 2023 for some Inside the Beltway Insight. Uh, uh, any closing statements, um, anything you want to leave with, uh, with the listeners today? Well, just, just what I said, that if you're looking for something, uh, if, you, if you're looking for something you can do immediately, you heard me describe that, talking about the issues. But if you want to get more involved, contact anybody here at NAA or anybody within the government affairs staff. Certainly, we would love to put you to work and get you involved. So just uh, reach out, and we're happy to help. Thanks for having me, Frank. Thank you. Thanks again to Greg Brown for sharing his time with us today. If you want to get more involved in industry advocacy, there are a few steps to take. First, register with NAA as a grassroots advocate. It's as simple as contacting Austin O'Boyle at A-O-B-O-Y-L-E at NAAHQ.org. That's A-O-B-O-Y-L-E at NAAHQ.org. Next, stay up to date with all things housing politics with NAA's bi-weekly Apartment Advocate newsletter. Catch up on the latest news at naahq.org slash apartment advocate. Want to subscribe? Just shoot me a note at communications at naahq.org with the subject line apartment advocate. Finally, if you're ready to make a difference and help advance sustainable housing affordability solutions, help break the gridlock at Advocate 2023, NAA's annual advocacy conference held March 28 and 29 in Washington, D.C. Learn more at naahq.org slash 2023-advocate. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on the next episode of Apartment Cast, available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time.